Hello, and welcome to Right Now at the Writer's Colony. I'm Chad Gurley, your host and colony coordinator at the Writer's Colony at Dairy Hollow in the historic arts village of Eureka Springs, Arkansas. We provide uninterrupted residency time for writers of all genres, whether you're writing a novel, short stories, poetry, cookbooks, a script, a play, a grant, a sermon, a speech, whatever you are writing, you are welcome here without discrimination. During the Right Now at the Writer's Colony podcast, you will get to join me in conversation with some of the writers in residence. They come from all over the world, from all walks of life to create. You'll also come alongside me and talk with artists, writers, and visionaries of Eureka Springs, Arkansas, and our local community. And together with some very special guests, we'll discover just what is happening right now at the Writer's Colony. So welcome, and thank you for listening. I am so glad you are here listening to this episode of our podcast, broadcasting to you from the Writer's Colony at Dairy Hollow in Eureka Springs, Arkansas. This year, in 2020, we are turning 20 years old. It was back in 1998 when prolific author and teacher Crescent Dragonwagon and her husband, writer and preservationist Ned Shank, they decided to transform the Dairy Hollow House. It was a renowned country inn and restaurant that they operated for 18 years. They decided to transform it into a writer's colony. After receiving 501c3 nonprofit status in 1999, the Writer's Colony at Dairy Hollow became official and began accepting writers and residents in the year 2000. Over the past 20 years, the Writer's Colony at Dairy Hollow has made a lasting impact on the arts and literary communities, hosting over 1,500 writers from 48 states and 13 countries. And we could not be more excited about what's to come in the next 20 years. Speaking of 2020, did you happen to make a resolution that you would write more, be more consistent in your writing, hone your writing skills? Well, if you've ever wondered about what it would be like to take a writing workshop in 2020, we've got you covered. From writing a memoir to writing for the screen, from writing humor to writing while drawing on the wall, from writing about scientific environmentalism to envisioning the foundations and the structure of your next novel, we've got you. Visit writerscolony.org backslash events for more information. Oh, and if you're wondering about the instructors, well, these people know their stuff. I cannot possibly do them all justice. So just seriously, go to writerscolony.org backslash events to find out all about the workshops we're offering in 2020. So yes, so back to this episode. Before the new year, I, along with our executive director, Michelle Hannon, had the awesome opportunity to talk with author Kaya Parsonen while she was staying here at the Writer's Colony. Interestingly enough, our conversation took place by phone. We all happened to be at different places at the time that we could actually get together for the conversation, and it was imperative that we all talk to each other because Kaya and Michelle share a unique connection. Kaya Parsonen has written two books, one of which is The Ruins of Us, which Michelle read and found their unique connection. It was such a joy and a pleasure to speak with her. Listen in. 
My name is Kaya Parsonen, and this is my fifth stay at Dairy Hollow. I first came um, in November of 2016 as a My Time Fellow, which was a fellowship they gave uh, to parents of uh, children under 18, and that was actually my first residency ever, um, and so that totally hooked me. Um, and I am a novelist, and I also write short stories and essays. I'm a professor of creative writing at Kenyon College, and I live now in Granville, Ohio. And I am Michelle Hannon. I am the executive director of the Writers' Colony at Dairy Hollow. And I read Kaya's book, The Runes of Us, and absolutely loved it. So I'm so excited to be talking to you today, Kaya, because, um, well, like you know, I grew up in Dharan, Saudi Arabia, um, which is where a lot of that book was set, like in that area. And you grew up, you spent time over there as well, correct? Yes, that's right. And I thought it was so wild that you were a fellow Aramco brat. I mean, it's just a small world. <laughs> I loved it when you told me that. I had no idea. Yeah, it was pretty cool figuring that out. And by, you know, reading the book, I was like, oh, my gosh, <laughs> I know these places. <laughs> what is an Aramco brat? So an Aramco brat, Aramco is the Arabian American oil company. It's now known as Saudi Aramco um, after it was nationalized in the 1980s. Um, and yeah, there are these several oil compounds in the eastern province of Saudi Arabia, uh, where uh, primarily when, when Michelle and I were growing up, it was a largely American workforce. Um, and so people lived over there with their families and there were schools and commissaries, sort of a, um, uh, a little self-contained enclave um, of expatriate life in Saudi Arabia. Good description. And yeah, and brats just meant we were the kids. <laughs> instead of an army brat, a military brat, we were Aramco brats. So we were these, but instead of on military bases, we were on um, oil company compounds. Yeah. And so, what's interesting now is that the project that I've been working on for the last four years um, is actually what I've been calling just the Aramco book whenever I talk to people about it, because it is a novel about the history of the Saudi-American relationship as seen by employees, both Saudi and American, of Aramco and their, and their children's relationships as well. Um, and it's interesting because when, when I wrote The Ruins of Us, which is not really an Aramco book at all, um, takes place in a city uh, modeled on Kobar, which was the, the Saudi city very close to Dahran, uh, where Michelle and I grew up. Um, at that time, I felt more interested in Saudi culture off the compound. I just felt like I grew up on this sort of Americanized compound. That's not very interesting. It was very suburban, like suburban Bakersfield, California. I mean, I didn't feel that at the time that it was worth writing about. Of course, I was very young when I was writing Ruins of Us. But now I'm like, uh, that's exactly why it's so strange and interesting um, because it's like this American community plopped down in the Saudi desert. And that's what's so fascinating and um, interesting about so about it. So I'm just really mining a lot of that personal history um, for this book. I always thought of it as a cultural bubble. Yeah, very much. We were insulated, but but not really a typical, it wasn't a typical American childhood by any stretch of the imagination. Um, but no. it certainly wasn't a Saudi childhood either. You know, we, we 
it was a cultural bubble. Totally. And that idea of being a third culture kid, I think, really resonates with Aramco Bratz because we weren't like our parents. We weren't totally Americanized. I mean, I was born in Kobar, Saudi Arabia. Um, I can never be president of the United States. Not that that was ever an ambition of mine, especially not now. Um, but, but, um, you know, I, I didn't feel American. I felt like I was from Saudi Arabia and, um, which is of course, as Michelle pointed out, strange because at the same time we didn't speak Arabic. Um, we had a lot of, there were a lot of Arab students in our schools, but they were Lebanese or Palestinian or Egyptian and all the Saudi students, at least when actually Michelle, you, what year did you graduate from um, ninth grade? 83. So when you were there, you probably did have Saudi students in your school. We did. We did. Yeah. And then that changed in the mid 80s for political reasons and practical reasons, as I found out in my research, that Saudi students were taken out of the Aramco schools and placed in um, state schools or private schools um, off the compound. And that was done for sort of like many different reasons. Part of it was that the king had to show that he was sheltering the Saudi community from basically American, the corruption of American um, ideals or lifestyle that people thought was sort of happening on the compounds, you know, where women could drive and people drank Mm. moonshine and they sold in the commissary. Men and women swam in the same swimming pools. Exactly. So, right, right. So that was considered, and the royal family really had to sort of placate the clerics and say, well, we have these Westerners here, we have these Americans here because they're doing a job for us, a really important job for us that makes us all this money. But we don't worry, we're still sheltered, we're still preserving our culture. We're keeping them sort of under lock and key on the compound. And of course, the Americans were very happy with that too, because um, a lot of people it would, would have found Saudi Arabia an impossible place to live um, without those sort of privileges of compound life. Oh, so when you're on when you're on the compound, you can live like an American, kind of. Like, I mean, pretty, you don't have to follow much. the the um, the rules and the structures of what it would be like to actually live in Saudi Arabia as a citizen. Yeah, I mean, that's that's really right. And Aramco employees were protected in large part from um, the Saudi strictures uh, and laws. But in a way, sometimes you could basically go too far. And so, for instance, you could drink alcohol, you could have alcohol at your parties as long as you sort of kept it on the down low. But if you tried to sell alcohol uh, particularly in like large quantities and make money that way, like bootlegging, hmm. then you could be arrested and thrown in prison. And that actually did happen to uh, a couple people, in, including the father of a friend of mine. Oh, wow. Uh, who was actually imprisoned. So it's like they granted you protection, but not total protection. Wow. And Michelle, was it stricter, even stricter when you were there or? Uh, I, I don't know. Um, it, even when I was there, it went through phases based on the political situation in the country and, and the Middle East. So um, when like when the mosque takeover happened, I think that was 79. I remember things got really uh, 
really strict for a while. As in, we um, we had church services in the junior high gym, and we had guards at the door to make sure that that nobody got in. Um, we stopped having church bulletins in case any of them got lost or got found by Saudis. I mean, you know, mm. uh, we we were really careful. And then during the Iran hostage situation, we had evacuation bags packed. And we were we were ready to go. If somebody knocked on our door and said, you have to be out of the country in 24 hours, we were ready to go. Wow. That is fascinating, Michelle. I'm so glad to like hear some of these details because some of my novel covers, I mean, my novel covers from basically the 1930s up through um, the late 90s in Saudi Arabia. And so these details of what life was like on the Aramco compound during that crisis after Juhayman Al-Otebi had taken over the Grand Mosque. Yeah. And then, of course, the hostage situation um, in Iran, which sparked all kinds of um, unrest uh, in Saudi Arabia, not only um, by the religious faction, but also by the Shiites, who I know protested in huge numbers and some of them were killed um, because, you know, Saudi Arabia is majority Sunni country and they have a, a smaller Shiite population that's discriminated against, um, and they're largely located in the eastern province, and many of them work for Aramco. And so, when the when the Shah was deposed in Iran, and Iran is of course primarily Shiite, which is a source of the tension between the two countries, um, then that sort of encouraged the Shiites in Saudi Arabia to really rally and demand better treatment. And so, it was just a really unsettled time in the country. And that's and normally we hear about like the, how the Americans are sort of it is that bubble you described, Michelle. But the yeah. bubble can only protect you so much, right? So hmm. that's just fascinating that you guys had your bags packed and were ready to go. Yeah, just we thankfully never had to use them, but we called them our evacuation bags. We had a duffel bag full of just what we would need, and we could grab it. Had all our important papers and you know everything in it. We can grab it and go. Yeah, and that was largely due to this feeling that the religious I, I'm asking a question basically like was that because people were fearful that um, there was sort of this religious takeover happening in Saudi Arabia too yes. and that the Americans <laughs> would be forced out that's exactly right yeah yeah it's so interesting um, and now in fact I just watched this great um, movie that's set in Saudi Arabia and directed by a Saudi director um and it's called baraka and baraka i don't know if you watched that michelle it's on no, Netflix. I haven't. um but it's just really first of all it's like funny it's like a romantic comedy saudi style so <laughs> and it's actually <laughs> like quite like convincingly made um and I, I really enjoyed it and found it really funny um but there's a moment in the movie where because it's sort of lamenting just how difficult life has become how impossible it's become for young people they cannot date they cannot, um, you know, even really interact with women. And then they're expected to, like, get married and live happily ever after. It's like, well, that's not going to really <laughs> work so well. So the movie kind of documents the hardships of, like, trying to get to know, uh, you know, men and women trying to get to know each other before marriage. And the director does this really interesting uh, thing at one point where he shows what life was like in Saudi Arabia before the great mosque takeover in 79, before 79 happened, when things were a little freer. And maybe, Michelle, like, I'd be fascinated to hear more about, like, in the 70s, before 79, 
like what things felt like in Cobar or, you know, outside the compound, if, if things felt a little freer. I know my mother, so my mother also grew up in Saudi Arabia in the 50s and 60s, and her family was there from 1951 to 1969. And, you know, you see pictures of Cobar in the 50s, and, you know, there are just women like American housewives walking in their skirts and blouses oh, yeah. with their heads uncovered. Um, and it was just much more relaxed. Um, so yeah, I'm wondering like if, if it felt that way to you, um, even in the seventies. Oh yeah, it did. Well, um, like I remember loving to go to Cobar and just, you know, wearing jeans and a t-shirt and thinking nothing of it. And then after about 79, I was 11 or 12 years old and I, um, I had, I studied Arabic for seven years. Um, and I just love my Arabic teacher. Saeed Adejani was amazing. And so I stayed in, in Arabic long after, um, you know, I started studying it in the second grade and studied it all the way through junior high. And so I understood Great. what people were saying to me on the street and, and it was terrifying. And, you know, I, I would get groped and spit on and I started wearing my abaya and veil anytime we went to Kobar. I, I remember yeah. saying to my dad at like 11 years old, dad, you know, you've got making them stop. And he said, I can't, I can't do anything about it. I'm powerless. He's like, you have to make them stop. Yeah. I was an 11 year old girl. So, so I wow. put on the Ibaya and it, so know, it wasn't just the religious police. It was just people on the street. It was just people. Yes. I think, wow. they, yeah. And I think because I was so tall at 11, I looked a lot older than I was. Yeah. And I, mm-hmm. you know, I think that's probably why I got so much harassment, but yeah. Mm-hmm. It's kind of awful. And that's so interesting. Oh, it sounds, it sounds really hard. And it's interesting, though, that you uh, learned Arabic in schools because by the time I was in school, so I started kindergarten in 1985, um, they had taken Arabic out of the schools. It was such a shame. I mean, I guess it's because, like, language is political. And if we're teaching the Americans Arabic, it's showing that somehow we're extending, like, this cross-cultural um like handshake almost like if they learn arabic maybe they'll start to feel they're from this place or maybe they'll want to stay here and we can't have them want those things because this is not their country and they're not supposed to be here long term so i think it was a a political move of the of a piece with taking the saudi kids out of the aramco schools it was trying to limit this actual cross-cultural exchange which had been happening you know in you know in earnest in a lot of ways, especially among the brats, I feel like brats, Aramco brats wanted that cross-cultural experience and they wanted that, um, you know, authenticity. And by the time I was a child, that was really denied us um, for political reasons. I will say though, you know, it, in when I was in school there, um, I, I started taking Arabic in the second grade and it was required in like primary school. And then by the time you got to junior high school, you could choose the language that you wanted to take. And most people chose something that they could continue at boarding school. So Spanish, Mm -hmm. German um, were really popular. French, I think. Um, My Arabic class were about maybe seven people in my, in my class by the time I was in eighth and ninth grade. And, and all of them, except for one other person spoke Arabic at home. Right. There there wasn't a demand for Arabic. Right. Yeah, I'm sure people just felt like, well, I'm not making my life here. I'm not going to live here as an adult. So why should I continue with the study? 
and I've never used it. I left in 83. Um, well, actually I went back one year. So 84, I stopped going back and I stopped using my Arabic. I've completely forgotten it except for, you know, the pleasantries and the swear words. <laughs> That's all I <laughs> Oh man. Uh... <laughs> That's all you really need, right? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, just kidding. It would be so nice to be fluent. I mean, I think language is the foundation of of actual uh, real connection. So um, do you have a desire to go back and visit the Middle East at all? Like if you could... Yeah, a- ve- very much so. Um, not, not to visit Saudi Arabia. I, I went back in, to visit Saudi in 2008 when I was researching Ruins of Us. And I stayed with family friends who lived off the compound. Um, my father was no longer working for Aramco, uh, and he was working for a company that didn't have any sort of accommodations for family members visiting. So I was very lucky to get to stay with our old family friends um, who were Saudis or they were long-term, you know, Palestinian transplants. And um, and that was fascinating and very necessary to the writing of my book which takes place in, uh, you know, post 9-11 Saudi Arabia, um, which was very different than the Saudi Arabia that I knew growing up. Um, but, you know, Saudi Arabia is not a an easy place to visit. It's not a pleasant place to be in a lot of ways, especially for a woman. And especially now under Mohammed bin Salman, who I find horrifying. Um, and I, I find that his, you know, modernizing in terms of letting women drive and like ending gender segregation, these are just meant as distractions, sort of a bread and circus approach to keep the people happy and keep them from questioning, you know, his total authoritarian uh, tactics, his torture of dissidents. Um, hmm. So I I actually had the opportunity to go back. Aramco was having a reunion in uh, 2018 and, or no, it was 2019, it was March of this last year and I had made my deposit and I was going to go because I thought this is a great opportunity for me to do my research and to speak with some of these old old timer Aramcons, uh, especially the Saudis, because my book is told from the perspective of um, uh, a Saudi executive, one of the first Saudi executives of Aramco. And so that perspective is really important to me. But then the Khashoggi affair happened and I was like, no, I refuse. I'm not going to go back to this country. I, I find that horrifying. I, I, I find it um, disheartening and sad when I see Aramco brats uh, and their parents being sort of apologists for the regime mm-hmm. and saying, well, you know, they sort of have to be this way because they're a tribal society and all they know is authoritarianism and blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's just the same line that the Americans used for decades, um, you know, and they're sort of justifying their imperial presence in the Middle East. So for me, Saudi Arabia is not interesting um, anymore. I What I would like to do is I would like to travel around Lebanon. I would like to go to Tunisia. I would like to go to Syria. Um, I would love to see Iraq. I mean, there's there are so oh, many countries your- in the Middle East. I'd love to go to Iran. I mean, there, I'm interested in every country in the Middle East, and I cannot go there. Uh, mm, right. <laughs> you know, the one place I probably could go safely is like Jordan. Yeah. Uh, and I'm really not interested in Jordan. I talked oh, really? to a, an Arab friend of mine, and he's like, Jordan is so anesthetized. 
Um, and, you know, I still think for me, like, it would be interesting because it's like a connection to the Arab world. Um, and I've heard it's very beautiful in Amman. But anyway, like, I'm, I'm more interested in some in the countries that I can't really access right now because of the violence in the region. So it's yeah. just sad. It's so sad. Well, let's take a really quick break and we will get back to it in just a moment. It's always a joy to listen to writers and authors read their work. So we're going to feature that in our podcasts. This week, we have author and poet Wendy Carlisle reading her poem, Juke, from her book, The Mercy of Traffic. If I was sober, I'd lift my head up and look at the mountain. But all I can do is beat time to this jukebox and think about the vet tendon bar. A crow comes down to bring me the usual bad news, as if she was my Carmelite, as if she was barefoot and I was shoes. Then she throws herself into a snowdrift, body in the snow, black as Frida Kahlo's eyebrow. I reckon my daughter's dead by the look in her eye. All the good Merlot's gone, the car's repossessed. I got passed over for the next best job. And I spent my last five at this bar where they picked me up a week ago for D&D. As soon as Dolly Parton's done singing, I'm getting out of here. But before that, I'm going over to the Union 5 and 10 and lay my good name down on a new red skirt. Thank you, Wendy. Wendy lives in the Ozarks, and she's the author of many books of poetry. Her poetry also appears in multiple anthologies. You can find out more about Wendy at wendytaylorcarlisle.com. That's wendytaylorcarlisle.com. Be on the lookout for our episode together coming soon. Now let's get back to our conversation with author Kaya Parsonen, author of the acclaimed novel The Ruins of Us, and Michelle Hannon, our incredible executive director. Tell us about... so. Tell us about The Ruins of Us, your first novel. Is, is Was this your first novel? Yes, it's my first book. Um, and I started writing it, basically. I was living in New York City. Um, I started writing it in 2005. I was just a baby, um, just recently out of college. And my dad had moved back to Saudi Arabia in 2003 which was the height of um, sort of Al-Qaeda and the Arabian Peninsula and their violence. And they had, you know, taken hostages and beheaded them and they'd taken over um, buildings and, you know, apartment buildings and taken hostages and killed them. So, I mean, it really was an actively dangerous time, Mm -hmm. perhaps the most dangerous time to be an American in Saudi Arabia. And so I just, started to write this story and my dad was sending me all these really detailed interesting emails about how things had changed since we we last lived there and um he's he's a great writer himself in a lot of ways so that just inspired me to start to write a longer story up to that point i'd just really been writing poetry and um i loved it i loved fiction i loved the expansiveness of the form and how it could really capture um, nuance and some of these really subtle feelings I I experienced about my sort of homeland of Saudi Arabia 
I finally sort of had a place to hash through those feelings, and that mm, was yeah. um, through that novel. Um, so I just I, I I just prize fiction so much. I mean, I know lots of people say, well, I don't read fiction. I read nonfiction only because that's how I can learn things. I'm like, are you kidding me? Like <laughs> I I learn how to be a human being through fiction, um, and I learn how to make sense of of life through fiction. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so. Well, and so what's the story about? So the story is about um, a an American woman who marries a Saudi man that she meets at UT Austin um, in the 70s, and they fall in love, and she moves to Saudi Arabia. She converts to Islam, and he's quite wealthy, um, and so they have this sort of nice life. You know, it's a cloistered life, but they have this life and this love, and they have children. Um, but, you know, then 9-11 happens and it creates a sort of shift in uh, the political climate there. And uh, their son, who's, uh, you know, half American, obviously, um, starts to really struggle with that part of his identity. He's um, teased about it and, and worse. Um, and he just goes through this kind of crisis of wondering who he is and what he believes. And um, you know, he doesn't agree with a lot of American foreign policy, and he feels somehow that as a half-American boy that he's implicated somehow. Oh, um, but, yeah, and so uh, it's sort of about this family in crisis. The, the father, um, Abdullah, he takes a second wife um, and doesn't tell uh, Rosalie, his first wife, about this woman um, for years. Oh, and wow. so she discovers this woman's existence um, by accident and confronts him. So the the family's just dealing with sort of a lot of tumult, um, and so it's it's sort of a do, a domestic drama with political overtones, I would say. That's awesome. It's called The Ruins of Us, and the um, and it's out now. You can get this. Um, and the book that you're writing now. It's fiction too, right? But it, it sounds like you're doing a lot of research that, uh, like you did on this book, that it's not just fiction. Yeah, so it's um, the working title of uh, this novel is The, the Book of Fate. It's had mm -hmm. several different titles, so <laughs> it's still a work in progress. I'm working on my second draft, basically. I finished the first draft this summer, and I'm just going through and fleshing out a lot of storylines and characters and, you know, doing all the stuff you have to do after you finish that very messy first draft. <laughs> and um, it's been a lot of fun because I've really delved into the history of Aramco. And, I mean, my grandfather, as I mentioned, took his family there in 1951. And so there are not only great photos of Aramco that I'm looking at from the 50s, and even earlier, but there's photos of my grandma and grandpa there at that time. Oh, wow. So it's really been a, yeah, it's been a real pleasure um, to imagine the world that they and my mom lived in, you know, in the sort of like frontier environment um, of early 1950s Saudi Arabia, and then recreate that uh, in my novel, um, except from a Saudi perspective. So the characters I'm writing in my book are young Saudis who join the company, you know, they're born in like the late thirties and they join the company in the early fifties as teenagers and then work their way up 
to prominence as executives uh, by the 70s and 80s, and one of them becomes the first Saudi CEO of Aramco. And he sort of roughly modeled on Ali Naimi, who um, did that very same thing, sort of was a, a Bedouin boy um, who was illiterate, but then decided, you know, there was this new company to work for, so he was going to go and try to make a living uh, working for them. And, you know, he tried for years to get them to hire him, but he was like 10 years old. <laughs> <laughs> there are child labor laws that, like, we can't, we have to abide by. <laughs> so finally, like, he convinced them to hire him when he was still totally underage. Um, but he was just so sharp, um, so so bright and brilliant and picked up English really quickly. And he was really ambitious. And he told them from a young age, like, I want to be the first Saudi CEO. And so I just find that story fascinating and inspiring um, and and sort of something that's never really been explored in fiction. Um, and then, of course, yeah. I'm trying to explore to, like, the – eventual political ramifications of the American-Saudi, I would say, compromise rather than a relationship um, that took place over the 20th century um, and how it can end up in terrorism and 9-11. Mm. My yeah. book is not a 9-11 book. It's not a book about terrorism, but there is an attack in my book that's a counterfactual attack that takes place on the Dahran um, compound in the late 90s sort of modeled on like the Kobar Towers bombing, um, except using uh, the compound as its target. And sort of that, the novel explores like how that reverberates among both the Saudi and Americans, Saudis and Americans who've had these really deep ties to the company and to the country, of course, and to each other. Right. And how it affects them and makes them question um, you know, all that they've worked for uh, their whole lives um, and maybe see it a little bit differently. And yet also returning to this notion that despite all the political uh, ramifications, despite those, um, the bloodshed and the ill will that uh, cropped up between the two countries, that in fact Aramco did offer this kind of incredible space for real connection and real yeah. humanity. Um, and in fact, you know, I know that because my father, uh, you know, had wonderful relationships with his Saudi coworkers and his Saudi friends off the compound. And, um, you know, Naimi, Ali Naimi describes these relationships he had with like his American bosses and how they treated him like a son and how, in fact, he was holding the hand of one of his bosses when the man died decades later in Texas. And that there was this real tenderness and mutual respect and love even that grew up between not only the employees, but also their children. I mean, wow. the people who, uh, especially like during Michelle's time, you know, people had real friendships um, across cultures and it was just natural. I mean, it's what kids do. They don't right. think, right. oh, you're, um, especially when you're younger. So... Yeah, I'm I'm just trying to it's it's hard to strike the balance between being, you know, uh politically aware but also granting those uh moments of humanity their space on the page. Yeah. When do you think we can expect that in bookstores? <laughs> I would love it if uh <laughs> I you know, it's a long it's such a long process. 
I've been writing this book for like four years now. Um, and I, I'm finishing up this second draft. I'm going to send it to my agent, hopefully, you know, early in the new year. And then she's great. I mean, she's going to read it and she'll probably have more edits for me, but hopefully, you know, it'll be a smaller edit next time around. So then I, I plan to continue revising through the spring and then hopefully she can take it out um, and try to sell it to an editor um, in the summer or, you know, early fall. And then if we do have the good luck, fortune to, you know, sell it to a great house, then from there it'll take about another year and a half for it to actually be out in the world. Wow. People just don't realize what it takes. I mean, I'm sure most uh, writers realize what it takes to put out a book, but I don't know that everyone understands, like, it's not just write it down, send it to a publisher. There we go. Done. It's right. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's a lot of blood, sweat and tears and then a lot of waiting. Um, so, but yeah, I'm hoping by like maybe um, 20 end of 2021 or um, early 2022 um, cool. that the book will be out in the world. Awesome. And tell us, uh, and we're, we're getting low on time, but I just wanted to find out, tell us a little bit about your experience with the writer's colony. How did you come here and um, do you find it productive when you're here? Oh my gosh. I just, I love Dairy Hollow. I can't even express what a magical place it is and how important it's been to my sense of self as a writer, but also to my work. Um, I've written huge portions of this novel, this Aramco book, at the Writer's Colony. And in fact, even though I received my grant, I received the fellowship to come in 2016 to work on a different novel that I was working on at the time, I actually worked on this Aramco book secretly because that's what <laughs> I sort of switched gears into. <laughs> and I was just, I couldn't stop writing it. And I just was so in love with this new idea and this new world. So I started writing it uh, really in earnest here in 2016. And then, you know, each time I've been back, that first time I was here for two weeks and really dug in. And But even when I've been here, I've made four shorter trips, um, sometimes as short as like three or four nights. And I'm shocked at how much I can write in that time. I've written like 25 really good pages in those four day spans. So wow. the level of concentration and focus that I'm able to have here and the research I'm able to do that in, has informed, you know, the the complexity of this book, it's just been so I've just cherished it. And so I'm just I'm really grateful. And uh that first fellowship I had, that was my first time at a writing residency. And from from there I've applied to several and I've been to several others all across the country, and I've just I love it. It's such a magical um, uh, thing that's available to writers in this country. Um, and I think Gary Hall is such a, a an important part of that, especially because it's one of the few that exists in this part of the country. So I'm just singing it from the rooftops. I'm always trying to get my friends to come here with me, and it's just a, a treasure. So I'm grateful to, uh, to the writers' thank you. It's so great to hear. Yeah, we're so glad you're here. It's, yeah, it means we're doing nice. our job. Yeah. <laughs> and I just love the new energy you guys are bringing to it. It's so fun to see all the photos on social media, and I think that'll help really get the word out. want to thank you so much, Kea, for, um, for staying at the Writer's Colony and for singing its praises and for writing 
the books that you're writing. I mean, I, I love the runes of us and I can't wait to read the book of fate. I'm, I'm just really excited. It's, it's nice Thank you so to much. read a book by somebody who gets it, you know? <laughs> I know. Yeah, I'm hoping that uh, Aramco Bratz will read this book and, and feel something, feel a connection to it. I'm sure they will. I felt a connection to the runes of us. Like I, it blew me away. It was so awesome, especially the sand dune scene. <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, that sand dune, man, that was pivotal to childhood. <laughs> iconic, iconic childhood uh, memory there. That's great. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kaya. Thank you both. Well, that'll about do it for this episode of Right Now at the Writer's Colony. I'm Chad Gurley, your host, as well as Colony Coordinator at the Writer's Colony at Dairy Hollow. On behalf of Michelle Hannon, our Executive Director, Yana Jones, our Chef and Housekeeper, as well as our amazing board members, I want to say thank you for listening. I hope that you will tune in again to our next episode. There's a lot going on in 2020 at the Writer's Colony, and we're excited that you're along for the ride. Until next time, Riders Rule.